Open palm. Yes. Bend, open, allow, tame. My soul faints with longing for your salvation. But I have put my hope in your word. When will you comfort me? Though I am like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your decrees. How long must your servant wait? When will you punish my persecutors? The arrogant dig pitfall, uh, pitfalls for me, contrary to your law. All your commands are trustworthy. Help me, for men persecute me without cause. They almost wipe me from the earth. I have not forsaken your precepts. Preserve my life according to your love, and I will obey the statutes of your mouth. Mm, good deal. Okay, I have just a... One specific prayer request today is Mary Jo, attends church here. She fell last night and broke her hip, so oh, she's in Blake Mary Medical jo, Center. Mary Jo, Mary jo that comes oh, with Mary Ray. Jo. Yeah, Mary Jo. Yeah, she broke her hip. She's in oh, Blake Medical Center. And if you want to go up and visit her, she oh. had surgery today, which means she's going to be oh, up and about tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> awake and about. And uh, so if you want to go up to Blake and visit her, please oh, do. And uh, I just feel bad for her, you know. I mean, here's she's the RN, and right. so now she's the one that's being tended to instead of tending to people. So that's too bad. Anyway, uh, there you go with that. We just that's want to keep right. her in prayer, and Absolutely. you know, let's see. Uh, we'll read this day in Christian history. Oh, and for those that didn't see, which I think everybody did, we have our brother Steve back from Indianapolis for a couple days. He said he might just stay the whole winter, which would be nice. Um, okay, I lied. Um, it's today is the twenty fifth, sixth, fourth, ninth, twenty fifth, two months before Christmas. It's twenty fifth. I don't care about that. <laughs> uh, Thanksgiving's coming, though. We'll have a turkey here pretty soon. Let's see here. Uh, October twenty fifth. You never know when someone's words will change your life. Named after his grandfather, Casper, I can't pronounce that. Wrightson or something was born in 1913 in Brooklyn. Teased about his name in high school, he changed it to Jack. His family occasionally attended the Unitarian Church, but Wrightson, I guess, grew up ridiculing religion. He dropped out of high school, joining the National Guard when he was 18. In the Guard, Jack became friends with George Schilling, a heavy drinker. To everyone's surprise, at camp their second summer, Schilling was a different person. Reading his Bible and kneeling beside his cot every night to pray, Jack and the others made fun of him. But secretly, Jack admired his friend's courage. Schilling persisted in handing out Jack, handing Jack copies of the Gospel of John, and Jack persisted in tearing them up. Finally, one day, he read one of them. Schilling asked Wrightson to play a trombone solo at a gospel service one night, and Wrightson agreed. Jack was upset by the preacher that night, so different from the gentle Unitarian pastors of his youth. The preacher pounded out a message of hellfire and brimstone that infuriated Jack. He left angry, but he could, couldn't stop thinking, what if there is a heaven and a hell? Well, why is that important to a Unitarian? Because they don't teach that there's a heaven or earth. They teach that everybody goes to heaven. That's what they yeah. teach. No such thing as hell, and if there is, it's for nobody. So anyway, that which is the stupidest thing on the planet is being a Unitarian and going to church. Why would you bother? You know, you just forget it. I mean, go out and have fun if there's no hell. Okay, um, let's see here. So that night alone in his bedroom, he realized that his anger was because of his pride and fear. He considered the possibility that Jesus did love him. Had Christ Jesus died for him, 
Jack finally slipped to his knees and committed his life to Jesus Christ. The next morning, when Schilling called to apologize for the preacher's words the night before, Jack responded, when I got home, I got saved. He immediately followed his friend's example of daily Bible study and prayer, but for several months told no one but Schilling of his new commitment, afraid that it would affect his dance band, the Silver Moon Seanders, or Serenaders, I'm sorry, which had some prestigious gigs coming up. He was also quite sure that his girlfriend Marge would not be thrilled. Several months later, he received an astounding letter. Honey, I'm saved and I want you to be saved, but don't get saved until I get home because I want to save you. Love, Marge. Well, apparently she doesn't quite understand the saving process, but amazed and delighted, Jack immediately sent a telegram back. Dear Marge, praise the Lord. I've been saved for the last few months, but I've been afraid to tell you. I'm so thankful the Lord has saved you, Jack. Later that year, a friend told Jack that his brother had died in a car accident two weeks earlier. Jack shared the gospel with him, but it was received with hostility. The friend said, if you knew all about this heaven thing and that hell is for real, how come you never told me or my brother about it? If my brother had known, he might have believed. He could have been in heaven right now, but you never said a thing. Deeply convicted, Jack prayed that night, Lord, never again will someone that I know die without hearing the gospel. With George Schilling and two others, Wrightson began holding Sunday night evangelistic services in Brooklyn. Their vision enlarging, they contracted for contracted for 13 Saturday night youth broadcasts on a powerful New York radio station. The first broadcast was on October 25th, 1941. From the New York Gospel Tabernacle at 7.30 p.m., these words rang out. From Times Square, New York, Word of Life presents Jack Wrightson with the words of life for the youth of America. Somebody, he recognizes that. Wurtson. Wurtson, I I don't know, I'm trying, you know, I can't even see, unless I wear two glasses, these letters are so small, it's hard to read, but Wurtson does sound right. It's W-Y-R-T-Z-E-N. Wurtson. Okay, Wurtson, the rallies. Yeah, okay, word of life. The rallies grew until 20,000 filled Madison Square Garden in 1944 and 40,000 filled Yankee Stadium in 1948. Wurtson, is that how we say it? Yeah. Wurtson opened World Life Camp at Shroon Lake, oh New York in 1947. There, and from there, camps were established throughout the world. God wonderfully changed Jack Wurtson's life in order to change the lives of thousands of others. Reflection, Jack Wurtson was driven by the desire to have everyone with whom he came in contact understand the gospel. After one missed opportunity, he never wanted to miss another. With whom do you believe God would have you share your faith? The first step is to start praying for them and then be ready to share when the opportunity comes. And it says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone. My who grandparents believes. sent me to that camera. Ah, well, there you go. See, I Jack Wurtson's legacy. Didn't get it, though. <laughs> That's all right. You eventually got it. Something got sunk in somewhere. What is it up here in Florida? Someplace close to Brooksville. Yeah. Oh, what is Word it? Florida. 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 Yeah. Florida Camp. Oh, yeah, they got, huh. they got, they oh, got yeah. a All from the same guy? Two yeah. years school. Okay. Wow. Okay, let's get, oh, let's say a prayer. Yes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for people like Jack Wurtson that uh, is willing to speak out the gospel, even though he failed one time, he didn't apparently do it again. And we uh, would ask for that same boldness so that we can tell people about the saving message of Jesus and also to not waffle on it and to be intimidated by others who disagree, but to stand firm on what we do believe. Help us in this, Lord. 
And Lord, we certainly pray for Mary Jo. It's just, it's very sad to think that she's in the hospital right now, already, uh, you know, just going through an operation and probably just a little bit lonely unless somebody's come by to see her. And we would pray that uh, she would have contentment in her heart and heal quickly. And Lord, we just thank you for the chance to meet here, to open up your word and to share it. And Lord, we certainly also pray for uh, the next two weeks that people will be willing to get out and to uh, get to the polls, whether it's earlier or on the day of voting, and to make the right choice that will uh, hopefully bring an end to things like Planned Parenthood, bring an end to things that uh, are contrary to what you would have for us in this life and to get us back onto a sound footing. But Lord, direct our feet in this. Uh, we're, we're a stubborn nation filled with all kinds of faults, and we certainly need you to guide us to the polls. So help us to make that right decision and to do it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we got Romans 15, verse 32 is where we're at today. So that by God will i may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed the god of peace be with you all amen okay you got two verses there but we'll do the first one right now 32 and uh, it's almost identical just okay. written back yeah that's fine interesting um okay so uh, let's see here uh we, we tried our best last week to get done with chapter 15 and I, there was no way i could so uh here we go we'll be done with it in about four minutes Taking the entire thought of verses 30 through 32 together, which go ahead and read them out loud, 30 through 32. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. I pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. Okay, there you go. Um, we find the necessary context there for this particular verse and the earlier verses. The prayers to God for Paul were requested in the immediate sense that he would be delivered from those in Judea. All right, and also that his service to the saints in Jerusalem might be acceptable. Remember, we talked about that as recorded in the book of Acts and Galatians, etc. elsewhere. It's that he is going down to Jerusalem. He wants to be delivered from them. He eventually wants to get to Rome. Well, he wasn't delivered from them, and yet he got to Rome. So it worked out anyway. But um, if these two things occurred, he was certain that in the long term, he would be free to go to Rome and meet with the saints there. And as he says, with joy by the will of God. These things, in fact, happened. He threatened several times, almost coming to bodily harm. There was a plot to have him assassinated. He was imprisoned and spoke before rulers and even a king, but he was delivered, albeit in chains as a prisoner from those in Judea, in, <laughs> as a prisoner from those in Judea. <clears throat> in those chains, he was taken to Rome to face trial before Caesar. Certainly none of this was expected, but the will of God, as he says, the will of God was realized. The book of Acts ends with the note that Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. That's Acts 28, 30, and 31. Though bound under house arrest, he was refreshed together with those in Rome. The anticipated and prayed for meeting did come about and God's will was realized. 
And I know it's short, but that's okay. The next uh, chapter is going to be a lot of short level things. Yes, go ahead. About your third sentence in there, you said he went down to Jerusalem. You always go up. You go Jerusalem. up to Jerusalem. That's good. That, that, good point. I, I might as well make a, a correction on that. What Burke said, and if you've never studied that, it always, when you're going to Jerusalem, it doesn't matter if you're going from the top of Mount Hermon to Jerusalem or if you're going from outside of Israel or wherever, you're always going up to Jerusalem. So if I said down, where was that? Um, uh, deliver from those in Jerusalem. Saints might be delivered acceptable. Anyway, I might have said it. I don't think I wrote it down. But yeah, anyway, uh, that was probably just my comment. But um, yeah, right. He, he's right. Up to, up, up to Jerusalem. Let me write that down just in case and I'll check my notes a little better later. Um, yeah, you always go up to Jerusalem. And as a matter of fact, where is that actually recorded in the Bible other than just statements that say I'm going up to Jerusalem? There's there's a, a, a set of something that takes you from one level to another until you're up Isn't to Jerusalem. The Psalms, that are... the Psalms from Psalm 120, and there's 14 of them. We'll go there really quickly, seeing as how you brought, brought that up. There's no point in rushing through Romans. So, um, the what? Hillel, or uh, Hillel it simply Psalms means praise. It's the Psalms of Ascents. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It starts in Psalm 120. Let's get there. And um, what happens, basically, you have to read them in order, and we're not going to do it tonight, but um, it starts basically outside of Israel. Like in verse 5 of 120, it says, Woe to me that I dwell in Mesech, which is some people say it's Moscow, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Anyway, wherever he is, he's outside of Jerusalem. And eventually, Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Whence comes my help? He's looking forward to going to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Psalm 122, it says, let us go. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So he's ascending. He's slowly ascending. And it keeps going through there. You get uh, Psalm 124, talking about the Lord being on our side. Okay, Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It's all directed towards, um, it, it's elevating you. It's elevating in reality. Everything is about elevation until you finally get to the Lord's house. Psalm 127, here's another one. Uh, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor who uh, labor in vain who build it. Okay, so each one of them is an elevation. It's a psalm of elevation or ascents. And uh, so you're starting outside of Jerusalem, you're getting towards it, you're getting up to the holy place, and eventually you're kind of in the holy of holies with the Lord. If you read those 14 Psalms and you just think about it from that perspective, it, it helps you understand what is on the minds of these psalmists as they were writing. Anyway, go back to Romans. Um, life application, he is there. God is there even when it seems he is far distant. Because God is spirit, we don't see him, and we often wonder about the events which happen around us. But if we truly live in the spirit, remain obedient through the trials, and keep our thoughts and our eyes fixed on Jesus, we can always have the certainty that everything is as it should be. All right, and that's one of those things that uh, I think it was in the uh, Roman, I'm sorry, Hebrews 6.16, I think I typed this morning. And that same concept right there is, you know, we have to think on the Lord. We don't see him. He's there. And one of the things about God is when he speaks, it is. It's from his nature. God cannot lie. Yeah, let's read that really quickly just so you know the tr train of thought because it fits in perfectly with the uh, uh, life application we just gave. Hebrews 6, I think I said it was 16. I can't remember. I typed it at 4 o'clock this morning. I'm still asleep. So um, let's see here. 6, uh, 
let's see here, six, uh, four men indeed swear by greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Okay, what he's doing is he's referring back to verse 14, saying, surely a blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will bless you. Okay, so he swore by himself, and he did that to confirm his word, even though his word is already as sure as it can be. And so the point I was making this morning when I was typing up the commentary is that when God speaks, we have absolutely no reason at all ever to doubt. God cannot lie, and so when he says something, it must be truth. And when he confirmed his word, surely blessing I will bless you and whatever I just read to you, it, it was a way of not only confirming it, but showing the immutability of his counsel. Anything I say is absolutely going to happen. So when you're struggling, just like I said in this life application here, when you're struggling, all you need to do is think about the last page of the Bible. I mean, literally, that's all you need to think about. Don't worry about all of the other things that are bothering you, that have got you down, somebody died, somebody's in the hospital, somebody's sick, whatever. If you go to the last page of the Bible, I do this from time to time because I want people to remember this. It says there, right there on the last page, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. There shall be no need for a lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever. And it goes on. It, it's all words of encouragement there. And so if you know that God cannot lie, and if you believe that this is the word of God, then everything else should take a second place, no matter how bad it is. And that's not to say that we don't get frustrated. I do. That's not to say that you don't get angry. I do. All right. I'm not trying to say that. I'm trying to say that when you are in that state, if you just stop and think about what God has promised, what we're going through right now will have an end and it will be marvelous when we're there. So it's just words of comfort that uh, it, it's good to remind yourself of. Okay, 1533. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. All right, almost word for word here. So, okay, in verse 1513, Paul used the term God of hope. This followed directly after a citation from Isaiah about Jesus, the hope of the Gentiles. Thus, he is the hope of both Jew and Gentile. Now, in this final verse of chapter 15, which closes out the major portion of his doctrinal statements and his future intentions, he calls on the God of peace. He's just asked for prayers and deliverance from possible trials ahead and in hopes of coming to Rome that they may be refreshed together. So he just said the concept of peace to the Hebrew is more than quietness. Rather, it is a state of wholeness. It includes contentment, health, and even prosperity. This is what he was looking for in their prayers and to accomplish for him. In anticipation of that, he offers his own for them. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. The God of peace is also the one to grant us peace. He is the one who fashioned us and the one who knows our every need. Only in him, in the God of peace, can true peace be found. Paul understood this and reflected it in his requests from those in Rome, and he has stated it in this short prayer for them as well. But 
Another aspect of this petition must be considered based on the content of this epistle. Throughout this letter, Paul has spoken about the various ways the gospel is directed toward Jew and Gentile. Okay, remember that all through there, he's directing the Jew, you owe Jew this, and they talk to the Gentile. What about the situation of the Jews? Back and forth. Okay, he has also shown how Jew and Gentile come to the gospel with their own backgrounds, and so they will apply it to their lives based on that. Rather than this being a point of disharmony between the two, he has shown that God has accepted both, and therefore there should be peace between them, not conflict or strife. Unfortunately, there's a whole group of people out there that do not like Jews, even believing Jews. They rail against them, they fight against them, and it's rather, you know, we got enough divisions in Christianity already. I mean, we got divisions because some people want to kneel in church instead of praying standing up or something. I mean, it's absolutely insane. But some people, they say that the Jews are out, they have no right, blah, 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 blah. They, you know, when I was in Israel, and I won't say who it was, but um, there was a group of Arab Christians. They're citizens of Israel. They were at the Jordan River and they were getting baptized. It was the most wonderful ceremony. You know, I would wonder if it was the day Rhoda was getting baptized because it was about that time I was in Israel. And um, anyway, they were out there and they were playing these, you know, whatever you call the things that make the harps, not whatever. What do you call this thing? Accordion. You know? Thank you. They were playing those and they were singing and it was wonderful. I mean, there were like a million of them out there. Okay. And one of the people that I was with was a messianic believer. And he said, those aren't real Christians. And I, I was, I was shocked. I was literally shocked because they are Arabs and because they worship differently, you know, they don't play the same music as the Jews or whatever. And I thought, you know, those people love Jesus. They absolutely, there was no doubt. They were just all over it. They were talking about how wonderful Jesus was through the baptism. There was people just rejoicing. And I never forgot that is that because they don't like each other and because maybe they don't like the state of Israel, which some of them do. Obviously, we got a friend that does, but um, it, it, there's just this this almost hatred between the two. I, it just it bothers me to this day. That bothers me. But I won't say who it was because he became a good friend of mine. But anyway, um, there you go. We, we just don't need to uh, to carry those. If we need to stand on doctrinal issues. We need to ensure that our doctrine is correct and if somebody is wrong we can divide the fellowship if it's really wrong but if it's just something that you know the rapture is pre pre-trib or post-trib or whatever that's not heresy that's that's just bad doctrine and that's not something to divide the fellowship but people like to do that kind of stuff anyway um rather than this being a point of disharmony between the two he has shown that god has accepted both and therefore there should be peace between them not conflict or strife this state is explained very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. So I'll take you there. Here's what it says here. 2, verse 11 says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Exactly what he asked for in Romans, he's speaking about here. Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. 
So for him to say that about the Arab Christians was just, and it just, it was annoying. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It's not a bunch of stones that are thrown over here that won't talk to each other. They're all fitted together, one in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Paul speaks in the sense that he wants people to have fellowship where it is possible. Sometimes it's not possible to have fellowship with other Christians. It's just simply not. Some people have the goofiest ideas about theology. Some people have no theology and they make up their own theology. And it's just not possible to have decent fellowship with somebody that is going to act in that irresponsible way. But there are people that are really true, sound theologians that have difference of opinion about the state of Israel or have difference of opinion about predestination or election. It doesn't mean that they are specifically heretics. When we went through the predestination, the election, I showed you who the heretics were. We cannot have fellowship with those type of people. All right. Those are the people that would be hyper, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, hyper Calvinists, the one that uh, say that God not only predestines people for heaven, but he predestines them for hell, okay? He just pushes them into hell. People like that, there's no point in having fellowship with them because they're already on such an ego trip. But Paul would have us to try our best to have fellowship with other Christians. It's tough, but it is possible. Anyway, um, let's see here. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, which I just read you. It's worth the time to read those verses in the light of Romans 15:33, which is what we just did. As you can see, Paul is very consistent in his use of wording, terminology, and doctrine. The same God of peace mentioned in Romans 15:33 is the one that is both explained and called or exalted in Ephesians chapter 2. Life application. Paul's comments are consistently directed to both Jew and Gentile, and he never, never mixes the two, nor does he indicate that one would somehow replace the other. Once again, that's not heresy. As adamant as I am about saying what I say, that Israel is Israel, the Jews are Jews, even if they're believers in Christ, they never stop being Jews, and Gentiles do not become Jews. I'm adamant about that. There is no room for wiggling in there, but there is room for accepting Christians that are saved by Jesus that believe differently about that. They can be as wrong as they want. They can sit in the back pew facing the corner, but they are acceptable in this church, okay? Anyway, I'm kidding about that, but um, the... Uh, Which part? Yeah, 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 well, the part about facing the uh, back. They have to sit in the back cor corner, though. He never uh, teaches that the church has replaced Israel, nor that Jew and Gentile are now the same. It is true that there is no distinction between the two in Christ, but there is a difference between the two as members of Christ just as there is a difference between male and female. People love to use that. I see. I can't tell you how many times a week, you probably see it every day because you're always posting on Facebook, but <laughs> how many times somebody will get into a theological debate and they will say something like, 
there's now no difference between Jew and Gentile to justify the unjustifiable. Yes. Because you tell them, read the rest of the thing. Are there, is there a difference between male and female? It says right there, there isn't. Well, go to your church next week, and if everybody, you, can, you can't tell the difference, then maybe you're telling the truth, but you're not. Okay, think it through. He's saying there is no distinction, but there is a difference. Okay, Jews are not Gentiles. Gentiles are not Jews. All right. 16.1, new chapter, last chapter. I commend you, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sanchera. Sancria. Sancria. There's no CH in the Bible. When you see a CH, always say, yeah, Sancria. Yeah, anyway, that's, and that's fine. You know, I mean, it's like uh, in the Old Testament, you'll see the river Chabar, C-H-E-B-A-R. It's not Chibar. So just, just think of a K. If you can't say the K, then just say Chabar. Anyway, it's better than the Chibar. Anyway. So my middle name is Charles. Charles, yeah. <laughs> Or my name is Harley, okay? Yeah, I write a Harley. Okay, let's see here. The last chapter of Romans begins with Paul's introduction of Phoebe, one of approximately 35 people that he will mention in the verses to come. He really lays it out in Romans. He never does this again, but in Romans, he really lays it out. His note, I commend you to Phoebe, our sister, is, you, uh, is used as a way of highlighting her as a member of the church. Because she was traveling with the epistle, she was either specially chosen or volunteered for the duty. Thus, she was a woman of note, and so Paul includes the thought, I commend. As a believer in Christ, she was to be thus treated in a worthy manner. In Galatians 3.28, we read that there is, oh, here we go, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Being a woman in the empire at this time and with a number of Jewish people in the church at Rome, without Paul's commending her to them, it is possible that they would have treated her in a manner of less weight than she was so entitled. Burke and I were talking before church today. He said when he grew up, the church originally had a division in the church and the women sat on one side and the men sat on another. Right? Really? Well, guess what? Synagogues still do that to this day. You go down to yeah. the synagogue. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's no mingling of the two. All right, and that's what they have that in their minds. And so, had she got to Rome, that may have been the uh, attitude of the people. Well, you you know you can't come into the church or whatever. So he commended her to them to make sure that did not happen. Okay, yeah. Based on her name, we know that she was a Gentile, and because she is traveling with the epistle, she was most likely a widow. Women who were never married or who were currently married would not be given such freedom to travel. Therefore, being a widow is an obvious conclusion. Next, Paul notes concerning her that she is a servant of the church. The Greek word for deaconess is used here, and so many try to interject that she was an instructor of the church or one who performed some type of ministerial function. It should be noted that through, uh, it should be noted though that scripture will never violate one of its own precepts. It will not do it. In 1 Timothy 2.12, it is explicitly noted that a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man. That is a prescriptive passage. It is not cultural. It is not limited only to a certain, you know, people will try to think up every reason in the world to violate that. That is not correct. That is a prescriptive letter to a elder of the church telling what is proper within the church. Okay, so. Therefore, any role that she held would have been in a capacity which would not violate this precept. There would have been a specific order of women in the church for the service of other women. 
as Albert Barnes notes concerning this. He says, references made to a class of females whose duty it was to teach other females and to take the general superintendence of that part of the church in various places in the New Testament and their existence is expressly affirmed in early ecclesiastical history. They appear to have been commonly aged and experienced widows, sustaining fair reputation, and suited to guide and instruct those who are young and inexperienced. That's Barnes's comments on that. In this, there is nothing intended to diminish the value or importance of women, but there is, just as in the family unit, a hierarchy which has been established and which is intended for the overall good of those within it. This precept has been neglected in modern churches, and guess what? Doctrine has suffered because of it. In fact, every church that allows this eventually devolves into chaos. It starts including LGBT people. It starts doing all kinds of things which are totally unscriptural. God made the decision. He wrote it in his word. If we pull out one verse from that word and we say we're not going to stick to this, the word no longer matters. There is no wiggle room. Yeah, I could go through at least 15 verses that show explicitly or implicitly that a person, and we will when we get to the book of Timothy, when that a person must be a man in order to be an elder or deacon. One of them that comes right to mind immediately is it says that a elder or, and a deacon, it says it for each one of them, must be the husband of but one wife, right? right. right? Well, what does that imply? That it's, that it's a man because a woman doesn't have a wife, well, right? Well, yeah, not, not yeah. in the Episcopal Church. a husband and have a wife. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly. Right. That's exactly right. So, And that's just one of, if you think through the verses that are given in the Bible, it will very clearly show you that precept. It will very clearly show you, you, you know, but if you take out that one verse, or actually it's two, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, take that out. This book no longer has the relevance it once right. had. You must keep this book in its context and you must obey its precepts. The precepts must be adhered to or this book has no value. Take out one and it no longer has the same value. So there you go. Um, when one precept is violated, it quickly leads to a violation of the others. Lastly, Paul notes that her position was at the church in Sencrea. Sencrea was a seaport near Corinth and so it can be deduced that the epistle was probably written by Paul there in Corinth. We don't know that, but that's probably the case. Life application, when evaluating scripture, such as the verse today where Phoebe is called a servant or a deaconess, the entire body of scripture must be considered. Just because the title deacon is used in certain ways when speaking of others, it does not immediately mean that all people mentioned with that title bore the same level of authority or responsibility. And we see that even within the mentioning of deacons elsewhere. Scripture will never violate scripture. One must be careful when making the assumptions which include a and include a detailed analysis of everything the Bible intends for us to see. Everything. All right. And that's why you need to know the Bible in order to do a proper study. It never ceases to amaze me how people can preach in churches. And I've heard some very, very good preachers that have never read the Old Testament, for example. And I wonder, how is that even possible? Yeah. Well, we sat in a church with one for quite a few years. Wonderful guy. But I mean, when he admitted that, I was just like, I couldn't believe it. I, 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 I was. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, so anyway, uh, life application. When evaluating scriptures, I was at a uh, 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 
what is it, uh, Temple Baptist Church down the road. I was there for years, right? Because that's where Tangent Thor went to school. It was co-located with West Florida Christian School. And there was a guy that was a teacher. And, you know, I sat in his uh, Sunday school class every Sunday. And he said the same thing one time. He says, well, I've been a minister for 30 years and I've only read the Bible once. And I thought, what? I'd read by the time I sat in that church, I'd probably read it. I, I don't know how many times. And I thought, this guy's read the Bible once and he's been a minister for 30 years. I, I was floored. I was absolutely floored when he said that. But, you know, there you go. So, and I went to another church to preach one time. Um, it was out in um, Mayaka, past Mayaka. I can't remember the name of the town, but they invited me to preach them. They needed a preacher. And uh, uh, it, it wasn't Arcadia, but it was in that area. Anyway, and when I went out there, they had a Bible study beforehand. Okay. And they brought out the Southern Baptist Manual. And that was their Bible study. They never opened their Bibles. They just read the Southern Baptist Manual on, you know, whatever the topic of the week was. It was like topic of the week was whatever. I don't remember. Yeah. But I'm like, really? well, that's not a Bible study. It's in, somebody else emailed me recently. I won't give any names, but uh, they said uh, our I'm, the church I'm going to is now going to do the Rick Warren 40 day something wow. for their study. And I said, I that just doesn't get it. You know, the Bible study is for the Bible. And that's what that's what you study. You know, if you want to have extra materials, that's fine. But you stick to this word. Anyway, um, so let's see here. When evaluating scripture. Oh, yeah, I've read that. Um, scripture must never violate scripture. One must be careful when making assumptions to include a detailed analysis of everything the Bible intends for us to see. Okay, that's your life application. 16.2. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she might need from you. But she has been a great help to many people, including me. Okay, close, different wording, but close enough. Here we go, 16.2. Speaking of Phoebe from the previous verse, Paul continues his thought. He commanded her to the Romans, commended her to the Romans, because she was a servant of the church in Sancria. And because of this, he desired that they would receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. In Christ, the once limiting or exalting distinction of Jew, Gentile, male, and female are set aside, and all are one in him. Therefore, it was his desire that she be so noted and so treated. Okay? Speaking of she's, I got a shirt in the mail today from our friend Charlie Missy. So this is, uh, oh, is it, it right? says, uh, yeah, Ictus here, which is, it's the uh, fish, okay, which is um, Jesus Christ, Son of God, and savior um and once again i i can't remember it right off the top of my head but isos christos theos uh which one is this i can't th, see that's oh, th. Th. this oh theos okay uios soter okay. okay so jesus christ uh god son savior so, so if you want one of these order it from gratefulsaints.com uh yeah she just sent it in to me i got it today so i wore it uh today as a matter of fact i went to lowe's to return something and i had the sticker on there and she said are you for sale i said what she said yeah you've got your your sale thing on there i'm like oh for sale whatever i didn't know it was there so anyway that was funny he's been sold yeah i've been yeah i've been sold 34 years ago i got bought up and i'm still that one's property okay so here we go um yeah in addition to receiving her phoebe he wished them to go even further and to assist her in whatever business she had need of from them. If this meant time, resources, or money, then Paul would desire them to go to those lengths in order to accommodate her. 
It is certain that if men had been sent on this mission, they would have received such things. And Paul was establishing now that the same courtesies should be extended to women. As Paul's letters are doctrine for the church, this precedent is intended to be carried out in all subsequent generations. Finally, he gives another reason for his request. It is because indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. The word for helper here is prostasis, or uh, yeah, prostasis, it, and it indicates a female guardian, protector, or patroness. This is an honorable title, and so it is Paul's way of saying she is deserving of their assistance because of the position. The word prostasis is used only here in the New Testament. <laughs> the verb form of it is always used with some sort of leadership position, and so mo modern liberal scholars make the unfounded supposition that she was therefore in such a leadership position, okay? This is inappropriate handling of such a word because elsewhere, Paul has stated that women are not to be in such positions. We read that earlier. Therefore, the transition, or I'm sorry, the translation, translation helper is certainly appropriate. To translate this as leader, particularly in the context of Paul's surrounding words, would lead to exceptional confusion in doctrine and disorder within the church. The title, as given here, means that she probably was one who greatly helped Paul and others by providing meals, lodging, and so on. She was probably also one to visit the sick in the congregation and to help others at the expense of herself, a tireless servant of the Lord. As she was probably a widow, as we noted earlier, she would be the ultimate example of one, such as described in 1 Timothy 5, 9 and 10. Let's read that just so you know what I'm talking about. 1 Timothy, remember, if you want to find Timothy, just look for the T, T books. You've got 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then you've got Titus. And so you've got the T books all together. But I said um, 1 Timothy, I think 5, 10, I said. Okay, so... Um, I got to be in Timothy and not in Thessalonians to read you that. Okay, 1 Timothy 5, 10. Uh, well reported. Let me go back to 9. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, exactly what Phoebe is credited as doing, we assume. If she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. So there you go. That's that's uh, what a widow was commended for, and that's probably what Phoebe was doing. She was helping out. What's that? Why 60 years old? Well, that's what he said, and so that's what it is. I have no idea why, but that's, you know, there was a reason why he put it in there, and so that's what we stick with because I have no idea. And I probably made a comment on it and forgot it, so I'll go back and read my commentary. But Having said that, uh, Freda isn't here, so we want to pray for her also oh, when we get done, right. because she's, she's usually here, and she was sick last week. Okay. I mean, she was getting better, but we want to make sure that we include Freda in our prayers. Um, let's see here. So, um, Their Social Security didn't pick me until 61. 61, that's right. They social Security, that's exactly right. All kids would be adults by that time. They'd all be adults by that time, too. That's right. Um, Paul recognized her importance, speaking of Phoebe used her in the significant cause of transmitting the epistle because of this and desired others to recognize her and reward her as well. And life application, stop. Ask yourself, have I been a tireless servant of the Lord? Have I used my time and energy in the most effective way in serving him? Keep asking. Consider, what can you do to improve upon the negative answer you just gave to yourself? Determine. 
Resolve to develop your service for the Lord. Act. Put your resolution into action and honor. Don't let your future service become a point of boasting. Instead, give God the glory for whatever you do in the name of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read that again. Stop, consider, determine, act, and honor. Funny, I don't even remember having typed that, but there you go. Okay, 16.3, go ahead. First, helper, prosthetic. Prosthetic, yeah, like a prosthetic. There you go, That's, that sounds about right. My head. Because <laughs> he's a hospital guy. Go ahead. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Okay, there we go. Priscilla and Aquila are noted in several places in the book of Acts and in Paul's other epistles. To get a full grasp of who they are, we're not going to go to all of them. I'm just going to read them to you. You can write them down if you want. Acts 18, 1 through 3. Acts 18, 18. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. And 2 Timothy 4, 19. That's where they're listed outside of Romans. These comments show the nearness of them to Paul's heart. They met Paul after having been ordered out of Rome. When they met him, they immediately became friends. They worked together because they shared... That's right. They were all the same profession, tent makers. In Acts 18.11, it says that Paul remained in Corinth for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And then in Acts 18.18, 18, it says that Paul remained a good while after that. In other words, they spent several years of their lives together at Corinth and became fast friends. It should be noted that some scholars and translations, such as the Latin Vulgate, place her name here as Prisca rather than Priscilla as it is written in 2 Timothy 4.19. They claim that this is the true reading of it. Probably the different spelling of her name is given as a term of familiarity, like a nickname, okay? You, you got Charlie, you got Chaz, hey Chaz, hey Chuck, I get them all. So anyway, um, as a matter of fact, I got one friend that only calls me Chuck. Yeah, and then I got another friend that calls me Chaz all the time. So I don't know, I don't question they want to call me Chaz or Chuck as long as they don't call me late for dinner. So um, yeah, Chuck, okay. Um, yeah, as a matter of fact, one of them is a friend on Facebook. You'll see him from time to time. Uh, what, Rocky was out at the time when we were growing up together. And you remember, yo, Adrian. Well, he was always saying, yo, Chuck. So <laughs> to this day, he says, yo, Chuck. He'll even write it in his posts. All right. Anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, don't hear from him as much as I'd like, but once in a while I hear from him. Um, let's see here. When writing to Timothy, who was Paul's protege and who doubtless knew her very well, Paul used the more endearing term Prisca, because Timothy would use that name too. However, in Acts and in Paul's other formal greetings, the name Priscilla is used. This then would be comparable to saying, greet Jim Blanchard for me when you see him, when speaking to a mutual friend, but saying, I and James Blanchard greet you heartily in the Lord, when writing an official letter to another church. This easily resolves the confusion which scholars and translators pick up on when speaking of Priscilla. Another point concerning these two is that Priscilla is mentioned first, thus leading many scholars to state that she was probably as being the more prominent and helpful to the church. That's Jameson Fawcett Brown said that. Or that it seems to imply that she was the more efficient. That's the People's New Testament, and so on. This is an unnecessary conclusion. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, the salutation reads, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. The chosen order by Paul probably reflects, one, the person who was most on his mind at the time, 
to the linguistic style for the situation. In other words, we would say Tom, Dick, and Harry rather than another order because it is the customary use of the names. To Paul, it appears that the order is less important than we tend to infer, okay? Understanding who these two are and their importance in the life of Paul, we can then understand his greeting to the Romans. He says that they are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Together, they had spent at least several years working and sharing in the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul remembered them with affection and noted them first out of all of the people he will refer to at the Church of Rome. Really love these people. Life application. We're just going to burn through Romans 16. Uh, in our generation today, the art of letter writing has almost been lost. Before the advent of the internet, correspondence was transmitted slowly. And care had to be taken to contemplate the words that would be written. Letters began with salutations appropriate to the intended recipients, and it ended with carefully worded thoughts, reflections, or greetings. Today, emails between even the closest of friends often disregard simple greetings. Make an effort to slow down and use care when writing notes. This is a last time for, there is a last time for all things, including sending letters to others. Mm -hmm. Someday, either you or your correspondent will be gone. And consider this as you send your heart and feelings across the miles and through the airwaves. Okay. And I, that's almost a little bit romantic today because you're just not going to do that when you have 5,000 emails a day. But there's a time to sit down and write letters. I do that every Wednesday. I either write a uh, long letter if you know somebody sends me a letter i try to write back either a long email or i try to write a handwritten letter some people don't have email or they i don't have their email and so i'll write them a letter and wednesday is the day i set aside for that but one thing that i remember and i don't know why this came to mind but it was so interesting i thought i'd share it with you is that paper used to be expensive too and so there was my grandmother kept all of the correspondence of her family she had boxes full of it and one of them was a letter that was handwritten by somebody to i think his wife and what he did is he wrote the whole letter out and then went on the back of it and he wrote the letter out and then he turned it sideways and he wrote sideways through every single one of them and turned it over and sideways so he didn't waste any paper and you could read very clearly four ways using one piece of paper it was really wonderful to see so it's just something i remember and i don't know if we still have those letters but i would have loved to kept that it was beautifully handwritten. Yes. Beautifully handwritten. That's being yeah. And now we don't even do cursive anymore. They won't teach it in schools. Well, some of them are bringing it back. Some of them are bringing it back. They all should bring it back. Mm -hmm. You know, if nothing else, it helps you wire your brain properly. Even if you, I write cursive terribly, but I can write <coughs> cursive. And your brain, every time you pick up a new skill, whether it's a new language or whether it's writing, you can learn language and not learn how to write, write that language. Or you can learn a language and learn, not learn how to read it. Some people can speak Hebrew, but they can't read or write it, right? Some people can write it, but they can't speak it. Okay, Will Groban, here's an example. Will Groban went to Dallas Theological Seminary, right? He knows Hebrew probably better than Sergio. He, he knows wow. exceptional Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, okay? Biblical Hebrew. He knows the, the parsing. He knows everything about it down to its minutest precepts, but he cannot speak any Hebrew. So when he heard me speaking Hebrew at the church on the beach, he said, how did you do that? And I said, I don't know, but I can't read it and I can't write it. So I had to teach myself later to do those. And even now I can't do either very well because, yeah, you know, in, in college, I took only one or maybe two courses on Hebrew, which was the biblical. And, you know, you learn how to read them and write them. But it, 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 your brain is always developing if you take the time to do these things. 
Um, so there you go. That's just something for you to know is that there are different ways of approaching languages. There's different ways of approaching your correspondence with other people. And you ought to take the time when corresponding with people to at least acknowledge their existence and not just the body of what you're saying. Yes. I like how you give the Hebrew definition of the names in, oh, yes. in, in your writings and your commentaries. I, I don't find that from anybody else. But well, you. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that you like that. And I got to tell you something that that takes hours sure. to do. I said this. I don't think I said it in the uh, the Bible class. Maybe I did. But I think I said it at church last week. Anyway, I did um, the uh, typing for Numbers 11. And I don't remember if it was 11 something through something or something through something. But the first verse of the day took me over two hours to oh. do. It was terrible and you know i've got like 16 verses to go and i thought if i go at this rate the rest of the way it's going to be wednesday before i'm done but it took two full hours to do one verse and i you know so i'm glad that you appreciate that because the study can be you know sometimes it's just almost overwhelming to sit there and to try to figure out what is this meaning because there's a couple of reasons why i do that one is because i'm never going to preach on that again ever i'm not going to go back and go do numbers again i'm going to keep going forward or go somewhere else but secondly, because I'm not going to preach on something again, I want to get every single thing I can out of it. Because somebody may ask a question that I hadn't thought of, and I'll think, oh, that, yeah, i got to go expending that brain energy on something I should have thought through. So I try to think of everything, and it's impossible. It, it is impossible to think of everything in this word. So there will be other people that will come after, and they can use that, and they can use all the commentaries of other people and build on it, and eventually there'll be a new insight. The, the word is inexhaustible. Well, last week's ought to be published in a book. Well, I'll let you publish it. Go ahead. You know, My, what I say... That priestly thing was really, really... Well, I appreciate that. I have to tell you, though, that when people ask me, you know, or, or say something like that, can we uh, use your material? I always say the same thing. My copyright is... You have a right to copy. That, that, that is it. I don't care. Everything that is out there, there's none of it monetized. None of it. If somebody wants the whole book of Ruth, you know, I'll just email it. Here, take it. You know, we want to use that in the study. Please do. This is the Lord's word. It needs to go out. There shouldn't be any of this. You know, I went to a pastor one time, Temple Baptist again. He was a visiting pastor and he preached and he did. It was kind of a cheesy sermon, but he took every book of the Bible and he, he said how Jesus is highlighted in the book of the Bible. And you can get this online, right? But he had it right in front of me. I said, can I get a copy that would you send it to me? And he got mad at me. He's he like, mad. you know, and he never, he wouldn't say any more to me after that. And I'm like, what? you know, I can just go online and get this. I just thought maybe, you know, it's like he's protecting. This is the word of God. Yeah. Get it out. Anyway, I shouldn't complain about it, but I'll continue. I'll stew over that until I die. Anyway, um, so where are we? Um, are we still in 16.3? Um, 16.3 still. We just finished that, didn't we? Did we? I don't know. Let me see. Yeah, I did. 16.4. Okay. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Okay. It's close, just differently worded. There we go. Speaking Bob of... says next. What? Mine says next. They're next. Mine says, uh, let me see. Oh, um, um, yeah, well, they're next. Yeah, that um, that was four. Let me see. Risk their own necks. That's correct. Yeah. This one, too, which is probably the literal translation. Yeah. So anyway, um, speaking of Priscilla and Aquila, Paul says that they risked their own necks for my life. The Greek term is literally rendered placed under their necks. That's what the Greek says, placed under their necks. In other words, they had risked their lives even to the point where they could have been placed under the axe, thus having their heads chopped off at the neck. What they did for Paul isn't recorded, 
but he was in trouble so often and out of favor with so many that just being around him would inevitably lead to danger. And so those near him could point and say, there he is, or they could risk themselves for his sake. These two chose the latter. How unlike them were those who Paul later writes about in 2 Timothy 4. Let's see what he says there. 2 Timothy 4. He says, 2 Timothy 4, 9. Oh yeah, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So especially Demas, he had forsaken Paul, and uh, there are others that had done that as well. So uh, how unlike him, Priscilla and Aquila were. Anyway, Priscilla and Aquila were steadfast in their friendship and devotion to their beloved companion, and he, <coughs> excuse me, desired them to be so noted. For this, he wanted them recognized individually, but he knew that many others had been there for him in the past as well. And so he notes also all the churches of the Gentiles. Wherever he went and wherever churches were established, the Gentiles had understood the gospel, received Christ, and emulated him, Jesus, in their care for Paul. The message was going forth by his hand, and he was grateful for their concern as it went out. Life application, what kind of a friend will you be to those Christians who stand on the gospel when it becomes more and more unpopular to do so? As the times progress, persecution will only increase for those who stand fast on the word of God. Will you be noted like Priscilla and Aquila? Or will you abandon those who are willing to give their life for the truth contained in the Bible? Decide now and be ready. The reason why is because that's speaking about believers, people that he fellowshipped with. And some of them just said, I'm, you know, I know. Titus that was mentioned in one, two. Well, Titus, it doesn't say that he, he left Paul. It just simply says that he Titus, off too. yeah, he was off too. So, uh, and I think that the terminology there does grant that, that he didn't simply leave Paul, abandon him, but he had left off. So he was saying that only Luke is with me. But yes, it could be inferred that way. But I think the way that he said it and spe specifying first uh, that guy, uh, Damus, that it probably meant only him and the other people had just gone on their merry way. So, 16.5. Read also the church that meets at their house. Read my dear friend, Epineatus, Epineatus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Wow. Okay, here we go. Let's see here. Epineatus. I said an extra A in there. But anyway, um, after first noting Priscilla and Aquila, Paul takes the time to ask that those who receive his letter to likewise greet the church that is in their house. If Paul is writing to the saints in Rome, then why would there why would a separate address be made to these two and the church that met in their home? The answer is that as Vincent's word studies notes, the expression here denotes not the whole church but that portion of it which met at Aquila's house could be like a Bible study. At this time, there was no established buildings used specifically for churches, although there may have been an overall church among whom there were all known members. There were individual locations where people would go to meet, one being at the house of Priscilla in Aquila. They were tireless in their approach to spreading the word and teaching the truth. And wherever they are noted, they are always shown to be instructing and accommodating others. In Rome, instead of their house being a private sanctuary away from the commotion of life, it was a place where believers would come and share in the Lord. The same is true when they lived elsewhere. 
Paul noted concerning them these words in 1 Corinthians 16. Let's see here. It says, The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Once again, acknowledging that same thing. Paul's next greeting was to his beloved Epineatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. He certainly had dear affections for this person, and yet this is the only time that he is specifically mentioned in the Bible. However, he could be mentioned elsewhere under a different name. Epineatus is a Greek name, but often noted several times even in the New Testament, Jewish people had two different names, one Hebrew and one Greek. Epineatus means praised which in Hebrew would be the name Judah. So he could have been known to Paul by this or by another name. Regardless of the certainty of this, he is called the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. The term first fruits comes from the Old Testament. At the beginning of a harvest, the first ripe grain was cut and it was taken as an offering to the Lord. We know that that was in the book of Leviticus, right? And also in Deuteronomy. This offering was to acknowledge God's provision and look forward to the greater harvest, which was soon to ripen. When this was presented, the following ritual is noted in Deuteronomy 26. Might as well go there because it's a pretty wonderful thing. This is what they did when they presented their first fruits. All right. And it shall be when you come into the land, which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you shall bring uh, from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Then you shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God and you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a Syrian about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there few in number. And there he became a great, a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land, which you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. The first fruit offering then was made to God in gratitude for how he cared for his people. The implication is clear. Epineatus is that offering, being of the first of the converts, and he was offered to Christ. This then implies the deity of Christ, because the offering is made to him as Lord. Who was the offering made to in the Old Testament? To Jehovah, right? And here... Epineatus is being offered as the first fruits to Christ, and so it, it's another of the millions of implicit references that Jesus is God. All right? Um, but Jesus is also called the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Thus, Christ is the fulfillment of the feast of first fruits, which was, if you don't remember it, go back and watch Leviticus 23, 9 through 14. Okay? We did the sermon on that. That is his resurrection, the first fruits. After that, the harvest then continues in him to God. 
Leviticus 23, 15 through 22, as began at Pentecost in the giving of the Holy Spirit. Epinetus is that first offering of the area of Achaia, but it should be noted that even though this is so, Paul also uses this term in 1 Corinthians 16. Let me take you there. We'll make a point about this in a second. 16 verse 15, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Well, he just called Epinetus the first fruits of Achaia, and now he's calling Stephanus that, okay? Because the term is used of the household of Stephanus, it's very possible that Epinetus was of this household, and this would explain why Paul singles him out this way. This cannot be determined for certain, but it would clarify why the same term is used to both. Or it could be, possibly, which I mentioned in a sermon, that one is Hebrew, one is Gentile. And at the Feast of First Fruits, what you would do is you would go up and they would present it, and you would have bread with leaven in it presented to the Lord. And it's the only time that this is done outside of, I think, uh, Leviticus 7. There's only two times that leaven is presented before the Lord. And what was that? representing was representing Jew and Gentile being acceptable before the Lord. So either he is a member of the household of Stephanus, or it is Jew and Gentile fulfilling the picture of that before the Lord. Okay, there you go. Interesting stuff. Um, let's see, life application. Priscilla and Aquila were tireless servants of the Lord, opening their home to the saints in their area as a church. Epinetus was the first fruits of Achaia. Paul has noted these people for their impact upon his life. In this, we can learn two things. We, one, we should take note of and acknowledge those who are faithful and tireless in their work for the Lord. Somebody noted our friend Burke today. I won't say any more than that. But uh, two, those who are faithful and tireless in the Lord are not forgotten by others and their deeds are, in fact, remembered. If this is so, then how much more does the Lord remember their deeds. Good stuff there. Okay, verse 16, 6. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Okay, I like this one better. Labored much for us. Oh. Sounds like she was pregnant, maybe. She labored much for us. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, um, verse 16, 6. Paul now asks for a special greeting for Mary. Her name comes from the Hebrew. Anybody know? Mariam. Mariam, that's right. Mariam. Uh, which, which my little doggy that I have at the end Miriam. of every prophecy update, yeah. that's Mary, which is short for Miriam, right? Anyway, Mariam, uh, which means rebellion or obstinacy. Oh. Yeah, well, the reason why is uh, it comes from the word Mara, which means bitter, oh, right, bitterness. Right. And so it's derived oh. in, yeah, something like uh, obstinacy. Rather than being a rebel, though, she labored much for us. Mm -hmm. A different source text renders for you instead of for us. And so many versions read it this way. So if yours has us instead of you, there you go. Um, us is probably the better choice, though, because Paul hasn't yet been to Rome. And so it's unclear as to how she would have come to Paul's note. But if she was previously in Greece with Paul, like Priscilla and Aquila, then he would know firsthand about her labors. This is the only time she's mentioned in Scripture, although there are a total of six Marys of note in the Bible. Like other faithful and hardworking people, this one sentence is what defines her for all time in God's word. A similar person of note is found in Nehemiah chapter 3. I'm not going to read it to you, but anyway, um, oh, here it is. It's my favorite verse in all the book of Nehemiah. I did put it in here, so I'll read it here. As the walls around Jerusalem were being built, 
individuals took care to work on specific sections of it. Some erected the gates, others cared for sections close to where they lived. Nehemiah records uh, who worked, where they worked, and he also gives insights into their job performance. Out of the blue, a man mentioned nowhere else in the Bible is highlighted. Here it is, my favorite verse from the book of Nehemiah. Next to him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashev, the high priest. It just, it notes this guy out of the blue and it says he zealously works for the Lord. He was doing his job and that's all you get out of it. But I love, every time I come to that verse, I have to stop and think, am I doing that? You know, that's my reminder. Am I doing that? Baruch, whose name means... Charlie, yes. you're going to have to uh, underline 810 of Nehemiah. Okay. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. There you go. That, wonderful. I like that one, but I prefer this one okay. because... <laughs> But I will remember that. The joy of the Lord is... It, sometimes I'll actually put that one on. Maybe I'll... Anyway, the morning sunrises, I'll take, oh, you know, yeah. go to different books. And sometimes I'll use that one. I don't use the one with this guy, though, Baruch, because if I did, people would be like, what is that? Anyway. Okay. Baruch, whose name means blessed, didn't stay home and watch through the windows, nor did he head out for fishing and camping with his family. He went to work on the wall. And as Nehemiah observed him, he didn't say Baruch slacked along at a snail's pace. Instead, he is given an A-plus rating by the Bureau of Better Wall Builders. His report card notes that he zealously repaired another section of the wall. He, together with Mary in Romans 16, who labored much for us, are rewarded in God's eternal word with notes of praise for their efforts. And then you come to another person, which is in the book of um, oh, One or Two Kings, where Naaman the Syrian is mentioned. And there's a person that's mentioned there. She's one of my heroes in the Bible. Her name is never given. It's just a girl that was carried away captive as a servant. She was Naaman's servant. And she said, you know what? There's a prophet in Israel that can cure him. That's all it says about her. But she remembered her people. She remembered the people of God. And every time I come to her, I think, isn't that wonderful? The Lord included her in there. Could have skipped over that, said it a different way, instead he included that wow. young lady in there. Okay, um, let's see here. Life application. If you were to receive your evaluation for your labors in the work of God, which he has assigned you today, what would the report card say? Think on this, because we all have a day of evaluation coming up as we stand before the Lord. Be like Baruch and Mary and be noted as zealous laborers for the Lord. And, you know, I say this every week during the Prophecy Updates. Every week, I, I you know what, I, sometimes people get upset, and I'm sure they don't watch anymore. I don't care. I will tell them, you're not getting any points for watching Prophecy Update. Right. You're getting no rewards. Right. And I say, stop watching 400 of them and watch a sermon. Get, read the Bible, you know, get the NIV Bible or whatever and listen to it while you're driving. That You're, you're showing the Lord you care about him. You're showing the Lord you care about his word. That's, you know, I just don't understand how people can just keep watching things that have no value, absolutely no value at all, and get caught up in those things. They can be depressing. They, they are depressing. After a while, they get depressing. It's, you know? it's, it's, it's prophecy. Yeah. That's what they're, okay, so where is prophecy found? Right. So go like, read the so Bible read because the Bible. Like that's a, right. If you if you are listening to just prophecy updates, you're listening to ninety-nine percent junk. Most yes. of them out there are junk, but people don't read the Bible, so they don't know that oh, right. this is junk. Mm -hmm. They have no idea, they have no discernment in clicking on some of these prophecy sites. Like I say, there's only a couple prophecy people that I would recommend people listen to. And there aren't many, yes. Just, um... Chuck. That's okay. I call me Chuck. That's all right. <laughs> and I the saying I loved when I heard it, 
they're talking about Americans, but it could be all throughout history. Americans know so much about what's not important. That's right. And nothing, nothing. about what's important. That, I'll say that I again in that. case they didn't hear that. Americans know so much about what's not important. They know nothing about what's important. And that is, that is true almost completely about Christians in general. They don't know the word. They don't have any context in what they are looking at. And so they can't tell if what they're seeing is, is pertinent or not. Anyway, and I, I, I don't mean to be that way with people, but this word matters. This is what matters. The people that watch and come to Bible studies, that's where my heart is. I got to tell you what, it's not those prophecy updates. They're fun. They can be enjoyable. You can learn a lot of stuff about what's going on in the world right now. But I got to tell you, the word is what is important. That, that is what we will stand before the Lord and say, yes, I loved your word. I cherished it. And what does it say in Isaiah? You know, the Lord has regard for who? The one who trembles at his word trembles it do you read the bible and actually tremble this is you know sometimes i read it and i get especially one part in isaiah where it's talking about the idols it's isaiah 41 2 3 4 right in that area and my every time i read it my heart starts beating faster and faster because of the way the words are coming out and i am the lord your god and there is no other and he's just he's making this point and i tell you my hair stands up it, right wow. now it is it just i I, it's what? I can see it. Oh, it's just, you can see it. It's, uh, it's marvelous. It's marvelous to see how he is telling us what's good and what is of no value at all. And I can tell you that 99% of what Christians pursue is of no value at all. The word is where it matters. That is where it matters. Okay, so let's go on. Oh, I'm still, I, I'm getting chills here. 16-7, um, uh, and we do have time. Yes, plenty of time. You are what you cherish. Yes, you are what you cherish. That's exactly right. So, okay. No, yeah. I'm not Jesus, okay? But I sure <laughs> cherish him. You, I sure cherish him. There we go. You caught me on that one. <laughs> Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Okay, kind of close. Different wording, same thing. So we'll say those names in the same word. Well, this was Andronicus, and the other one is Junia. In this one, he has the S on the end there. Oh, okay. Just depends on the translator how they're going to put it. But Andronicus, Andronicus. I, I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to look at the Greek. I, I, I you know, when you look at the Greek, you can tell easier oh, than sure the. Sure, you can. Yeah. Well, no, well, yeah, when you look at it, anyway, yeah, I can. <laughs> excuse me, in his next request for greeting, Paul singles out Andronicus and Junia, okay, and there were no J's, it would have been Unia back then, oh, yeah. they are listed nowhere else in scripture, and so many things are uncertain about them, the name Junia is feminine, but some versions convert it to the masculine, Junius, like yours did, in order to avoid confusion, something which only leads to more confusion. <laughs> the reason for the change is because of the use of the word apostle in the sentence. That will be evaluated in a moment, so hold on. It is probable that these two were either married or siblings, and so he notes them together as he did with Priscilla and Aquila. First, Paul calls them my countrymen. The word is syngenus. Uh, it means kinsmen, and it has one of two possible meanings concerning their relation to Paul. The first is that they are Jewish as he is, thus they are kinsmen according to the flesh. This would be comparable to what he says in Romans 9, 3 when speaking about the Jews. Let me read that to you so you remember. It's been a week since we were in Romans 9. For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. So that could be what he's referring to with these two here. Okay. 
The second possibility is that they are actually his relatives. This is a strong possibility because in this long list of people he is greeting, there are other Jews mentioned, and he doesn't call all of them kinsmen. He will again use the term in verses 11 and 21, though. In verse 21, he is certainly speaking of those listed as Jews and not as his relatives. So this could go either way. After noting this, he then calls them my fellow prisoners. Regardless of whether they are immediate family or only related as Jews, they had an intimate bond with Paul, who was often, often imprisoned. We can go to 2 Corinthians 6, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 11, 23, etc. for that. Yes? Did they put women in prison back then? That I don't know. I have no idea. I'm sure they had them. I don't know if they put them together. You know, you were saying they, some people refer to that as a woman. Right. That's this name. I just wondered, you know. Yeah, I, I have no idea. I'm sure they had women cells for, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they had to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they had to. Yeah. That was Jewish prison, prison, but they, they did there, and they certainly had to in Rome. Their women have always been well, criminals so just, just like men. Paul what? called in men and women to go to jail. Sure. Before he was saved. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, there you go. They were willing to be in prison for the name of Christ as Paul was, and he wanted to know this. He wanted this to be known to those he was writing to. And because of their life for Christ, they were of note among the apostles, he says. Again, however, this could have one of several meanings. The first is in the context of their service. They are of note among the other apostles. This would mean that they weren't noted only by Paul, but by all of the apostles. The second possibility is that they were actually apostles, and they were apostles of note. If this is the case, then it would then have one of two possibilities. The first is that they were actually designated apostles, as were Peter, James, John, etc. The second is that the term apostle is used in a broader sense with its original meaning, sent ones. They were merely people sent to proclaim Christ, but not numbered among the actual witnesses of the work of Christ. Thus, apostle here is a designation of service and not of office. Okay, so there's all kinds of possibilities with this. We can't be dogmatic. If somebody's dogmatic, it's because they have a presupposition, presupposition or they have a bias and they want to force that. I'm trying to give all of the options here. The most likely of these is, uh, of these three, is the first. They were noted by the apostles rather than being noted as apostles. The reason for this is that the title isn't used in this sense of designation as it is used elsewhere by Paul such as in his introductory comments of Romans and his other epistles. The term apostle as a designation is incorrectly applied today. We need to remember this. The apostolic age ended with the completion of the Bible, and therefore there are no actual apostles in the church. And that means apostles of Jesus Christ, because they have to be commissioned by Jesus Christ. He's not here. Remember, we take the Lord's Supper. What do we say? We remember his death until he comes again. He's not here. He's not commissioning apostles. We need to remember that. Okay, so um, let's see here. Uh, the, yeah, there are many who claim the title, but none who have earned it. It is reserved for those who directly bore witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and were sent by him. They are sent ones, apostles of Jesus Christ. Finally, as a note of their long service, he states that these two were in Christ before me. This means that they had received Christ before he had. It almost sounds as if he envied this. He had walked contrary to Christ and had worked against him. And not only that, he needed a special calling and a visible, tangible manifestation of the Lord before he was converted. 
okay? These two had come to the Lord by faith. Paul notes this as exemplary and worthy of note. Life application, we have, yeah, we have time for one more. Um, when noting others, a good way to highlight their life or deeds is to do so in comparison to yourself when they excel you in one area or another. There's nothing which diminishes you when you exalt another. Instead, it shows a properly placed care for what they rightly deserve. Okay? 16.8. The Ampliatus, who I love in the Lord. Okay, see, mine says Amplias, but anyway, Ampliatus or Amplias, whatever. Um, I think you probably pronounce that perfectly, too. Um, eight, uh, let's see here. Uh, various texts say Ampliatus in place of Amplias. Regardless of the actual spelling of his name, or if Amplius is simply a shortened nickname of Ampliatus, this is the only place in the Bible where he's mentioned, but he's given an especially endearing description by Paul, my beloved in the Lord. Four times in this chapter, the term beloved is used by him. Out of approximately 35 names, this then shows that there was more than just a passing friendship, but one of intimacy. It could be that Paul led him to Christ or that they worked together for the gospel. Whatever the situation, Paul is using up the writer's ink with memos of affection as he progresses through his list of notables. Life application, we got time for one more after this too. Time moves steadily forward and we don't know when our last day will come, nor do we know when the end of those around us is gonna come. We didn't know that uh, Mary Jo was gonna slip and break her hip, right? It happened and now we gotta tend to her for a while. Because of this, it is good to take a moment and recognize those who are near and dear to us. Take a minute today to send a note of encouragement to someone who is dear to you. All right. I try to do that once in a while. You know, what happens is inevitably I think of somebody at like three o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning, the computer's not on. And I think, I hope I remember to send them an email in the morning. And then I'm out working and I've forgotten, right? Well, somebody that I, I came to know this past year came to my mind a couple of days ago. And finally this morning, I sent him an email and I said, have a great day. Be safe because he's got a very, very uh, dangerous, yeah, very dangerous. I would call it a dangerous job. And uh, then somebody else that was with him as well, I said, please say hi to him. So it was a guy, I don't want to say it, but it was the guys I went bear hunting with. So, yeah, just, I, I you know, I, the other guy that took me bear hunting, once in a while, I'll give him a call on the phone and we'll talk as well. But, you know, they're just good guys. And, and I just, they came to mind and I thought I should probably say hi because you don't know when you're not going to talk to people again. Yes, so, this is true. yeah. A friend of mine who's now in heaven, Ted Schwarzwelder, yeah. worked for a power company and he drove to different locations to check. He was a, in the county. He carried a flip tablet. Right. And he'd be thinking about, he taught Sunday school. He'd say he'd reach over and get that tablet and write it down. Good for him. He'd do that. He said, I did that all day long. And I'm thinking about it. something that was brought to my mind. I jotted it down. So put a tablet in the pan for your bed. Yeah, well, yeah, bye bye bed. I, I don't think that's gonna happen. You can but do that it, on your phone too. Yeah, I I could do it on my phone. See, I'd have to turn on the light and I'm not doing that. Once you turn on the lights, you can't get back to sleep. Your eyes have got the, the cones and rods are sparking and no, that's not and uh, I don't think we have time for yes we do. We're gonna do sixteen nine we'll be done Great for the day. Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my dear friend Stachis. That's probably pretty close, yeah. Stachis. No C H no. No. Okay. Anyway, here we go. 16.9. Uh, Paul next takes time to note a city boy in a country bumpkin. 
Urbanus means belonging to the city or city breed, urban, right? And Stachys means ear of grain. Urbanus was a rather common Roman name and was even the name used by eight different popes of the Roman Catholic Church. On the other hand, Stachys is a Greek name and references to it are far less common in ancient literature. Extra biblical writings note that both of these men continued on in their work for the Lord. Urbanus is believed to maybe have become an early pastor of the church in Rome. And Stachys is said by John Gill to have been one of the 70 original disciples mentioned in Luke 10, 1, when he wow. said go out, right? And that he further became a bishop of Byzantium. However, these two are noted only here in scripture. Urbanus is noted by Paul as our fellow worker in Christ. Whatever his work, he was there with the apostles or helping others or helping out behind the scenes. And Stachys is noted as my beloved, which indicates a special note of friendliness and devotion. Life application, God uses people of all sorts to accomplish his work. Regardless of where you are from, what has occurred in your past, or what your social standing is, or even what you do for a living, there is always a use for you. Allow the Lord to become your driving motivation in all things. Did you say his name meant a colonel? Uh, ear of, uh, uh, <laughs> not a colonel like in a colonel, a, uh, what, an ear of grain. A colonel, yeah, a colonel of grain, but not a colonel in the army. Yeah, yeah, ear of grain. Okay, here we go. Let's say a prayer. We will be out of here. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for, wow, what a fun time it is in Romans 16, learning about these people and, uh, it uh, just adds to our ability to come up with life applications to apply to our own life. And of course, your word is full of that. There's all kinds of wonder in your word. And it's such a treasure to come here and to share in it with others that respect your word and care about it. And Lord, we, we just love you. You are so very good to us. And we praise you and exalt you for all you've done in our lives. We certainly pray for Preta if she's not feeling well. And if she's not here and she's doing something, then praise the Lord for that. And we also pray for Mary Jo, who is certainly groggy at best right now and probably a little depressed in her life. So we ask that you comfort her and be a ever-present help to her through her healing. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let me back this baby up. Uh, it's a hit from the past. You got to That's it.